it's so helpful to know what it's like to be sitting in the client seat. And so if I'm asking you to do dance therapy, if I'm asking you to do internal family systems, if I'm doing addiction counseling and I'm asking you to give something up, I better know what it's like, right? I better know what that ask entails. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today on the show, we've got Lindsay Locke with us. Now, Lindsay is a psychotherapist with a master's degree in counseling psychology from John F. Kennedy University. She is also the host of the podcast Get Psyched. And although Lindsay is currently not taking on any new clients, we do get to benefit from her life experience and her wisdom on today's show. Now, in today's conversation, we talk about how the therapy industry has changed over the years. What are some of the barriers to entry for men in receiving therapy? How do our attachment styles show up and impact our relationships? What are the differences between coaching and therapy and so much more? Get ready. I know you're going to love today's show. So let's head right into it. Did you notice in your practice, if you were to look at like the demographic, did you tend to attract more men, women? Was it even or anything like that? Mm. As my practice continued to get more established, I definitely had more women than I did men. And I think that that's very, very common in general. Like we were talking about before, it seems as though there's a big, big barrier to entry for men. What was really interesting is that I saw more men during the pandemic than Mm. I saw women. And this is completely anecdotal. I actually don't have any studies or research about this, but I was so nervous about going online because my entire practice went virtual at that time. We were also social distancing. And I was like, what's going to happen, right? So much of therapy is sitting in the room with someone and sitting in their energy. Mm. Does that happen on Zoom? Can we co-regulate on Zoom? And there actually was a lot of studies that came out said, yes, you can, right? And there were things that I did as a practitioner that helped with that co-regulation. Like if I noticed my client was getting really anxious, maybe their speech was a little bit more rapid or I was watching their chest breath, right? Really, really fast. I would kind of take a huge breath and watch my shoulders lift and fall very slowly on the screen And they would start to regulate to my breathing, really kind of leaning in, right? Oh, that's really interesting. And so it was kind of funny. It wasn't that I was being theatrical, but I had to be very mindful of kind of my nonverbal cues that I'm here and I'm listening. Mm. And when it came back to, hey, do we want to meet in person? Because we can do this thing again. All of my clients, men and women, wanted to stay virtual. Really? Yeah. And I was kind of like, oh, what? You're... You're ditching me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they all wanted to stay virtual. And some people were like, yeah, I really like being cozied up in my own home with the blanket that smells like me and the candle that I lit. And I just feel like I can be a lot more dropped in, a lot more authentic, a lot more present when I'm here. 
Um, other people, and I think this is a barrier to entry for a lot of people, but especially in my male clients were like, I didn't want my car parked outside your office. I didn't want people to know that that's what I was going to go do. I didn't want to sit in traffic and plan out two and a half hours of my day to go to therapy when I can sign on and have it be an hour. And those were all things that I hadn't really considered, right? I didn't know. I mean, I guess I knew, but it was a lot more present and highlighted for me when my clients said, yeah, it's, it's kind of a stigma for my car to be parked outside. What if my boss drives by and sees my car parked outside a therapist's office? What if this person from this place or, you know, whatever. And I think that that is something that is kind of a, a silent barrier to entry. We don't always talk about is how more readily acceptable it was for women to be like, Oh, I saw you at the coffee shop. I was so excited to like (laughs) say hi and what's up and tell you about this toxic relationship that I dropped off. And I would see male clients in, in public and there might be like a little wave, but that was it. Wow. And so I think that we live in a world that doesn't promote men going to therapy as, as much as I would like to say, we're so open about it. And, you know, we talk about mental health so much more openly than we ever have. Yes. And who are, who's having those conversations more often than not it's women. And so I think that that is definitely a barrier to entry, just the, the social stigma that follows men going into therapy. Does that come up even in the session? Like if they're coming to you for a specific issue or whatever that may be, do you guys talk about like, what's it like being here for you? Cause as I was sharing before we hopped on, I've never personally experienced therapy quote unquote. And then my only real knowledge is what I've heard out there, but also what we see in movies. So like the first movie I was thinking of today, this morning before we, uh, we, you came over was Goodwill Hunting. So good. Like, God damn, Robin Williams was good. He's so good. That was the first movie. I was <laughs> like, I hope Mike talks about Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Is that, well, there's a few questions there, but in that movie, would you say, I mean, I don't know what a traditional therapist is, but I also know some of the education that you've done is much more holistically focused. So where does Robin Williams fit into that mold? Because I've also seen movies where it's just literally uh, someone's laying on a chair and they can't even see the therapist. So like, I imagine there's a huge range of practitioners and experience. So what's been your experience with all that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with there's a huge range. And I might look at that as the modality um, or different therapy modalities that we all use. There are modalities where like you sit in a chair, you don't see me. And I ask you kind of these unconscious questions and we see what comes up. Who are you when I'm not in front of you? Who are you when I'm not, you don't have to be a persona you think I'm going to like. You can just kind of flow of consciousness speak to me. And so it is not a knock to any practitioner the way that any of them practice. Mm. Um, The school I went to, we had a, a traditional program and we had a holistic program and it was really <laughs> funny because you'd walk on campus and you would kind of know <laughs> who was going the more clinical, you know, traditional route. It was very like paper files and I'm kind of, I'm not calling anyone a nerd. I don't want to be like pocket protectors and you know, whatever. But, um, and then there was the holistic program that I was in and we're in like flowy pants and floor pillows and doing, you know, it was very experiential, which I loved because for anybody who is becoming a a therapist, it's so helpful to know what it's like to be sitting in the client seat. 
And so if I'm asking you to do dance therapy, if I'm asking you to do internal family systems, if I'm doing addiction counseling and I'm asking you to give something up, I better know what it's like, right? I better know what that ask entails. And so, so much of my training was, no, you're going to be in 10 weeks intensive dance therapy and you are going to experience it. And so I think that what's so beautiful about the holistic approach is I can pull from so many different thoughts and so many different schools of therapy, if you will, to really meet the client that's in front of me. Because not everyone, you know, some of my male clients that came in for, for various things, I was like, we're going to dance <laughs> for 50 minutes. They would be like, I'm never coming back. Yes. Ever. <laughs> my, my therapist is a kook and I'm never, ever coming back to that. Right. And so I think with that spectrum, we were talking about the most important thing is finding a therapist that you resonate with personally. Mm. Um, I love it. Peter Atia actually just posted this research that for me, what felt like common knowledge, I also went to school for this, but it's not common knowledge for most people that the number one most effective intervention in therapy is the therapeutic alliance, is the rapport that you have with your client. And so that's not something you can teach, mm. right? Like I know that I am not the therapist for everybody mm. and I shouldn't be. Holy shit, that would be so much responsibility if it was, I was supposed to be everyone's, you know, I don't like to use the word healer, but everyone's therapist, if I was supposed to sit with everyone's shit, that'd be exhausting. And so I think it's totally normal to break up with your therapist. We can talk about that. Mm. Um, I know pretty, pretty much from the get-go, from my discovery call with a client, if we're vibing and meshing and this feels good, or if we don't. And at that point, it's my job as a professional to refer you to someone else right? I'm happy to help you with these things. And I think someone could do it better. Mm. And I think that this person's way more in alignment with what you're looking for. And so to go back to uh, your goodwill hunting, I think that that was the therapist. Who is it? Matt Damon. Mm -hmm. That is a therapist Matt Damon needed, right? He needed a man to show him what it's like to be vulnerable, to be gentle, wow. and to also call him on his shit, right? When he let the girl go and he was like, is this what you want? Right? Do you want to continue to repeat what you've always done? Where has it gotten you? How's that? Right? And kind of, we can be, I don't even want to say that we guide you to healing because the client does the healing that the client is ready to do. They just do it within the eyes of a loving witness that is the therapist. Hmm. Wow. With that, what comes up is now Goodwill Hunting is, I would say, an exception to maybe other movies that I've seen where you have those scenes again with the client patient sitting on a couch and then the therapist not there. But just what you said about the experiential component about your education, I think is fascinating because at least from what I'm aware of, like one of the stigmas about therapy is that it's purely talk therapy. Like there's a missing component of action and or exactly what you said, actually maybe even involving the body or involving the breath. And so just hearing that, like that goes counter to what I would say 90% of what I've been exposed to in terms of how most therapy is conducted. Is most therapy focused just on talk or was that something that was really unique to the holistic stuff that you went through? I think that talk therapy was what we knew therapy to be 
20 years ago, right? Mm. And, and any time in the past, that was all we had. It's mm. cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was like the idea that we are going to talk about your trauma. We're going to talk about your triggers. And the more I expose you to it and the less triggered you appear to be, it's kind of that like uh, exposure therapy, right? I'm going to expose you to this thing over and over and over <laughs> and it's going to lose its, its kind of grip on you. And what we know now is that that actually continuously re-traumatizes people. And so there is a lot of therapists that are now trauma-informed therapists. I think that's really important um, if you're out there looking for a practitioner. Is your therapist trauma-informed? Have they gone through the classes? Because basically that means I have I've done the work to not re-traumatize you. Mm. And so much of that, right? Van der Kolk um, wrote The Body Keeps the Score. And that's such a colloquial book now. But when it came out, not all that long ago, this book came out in like the 90s, Mm. maybe even the early 2000s. It was groundbreaking, right? None of us knew what it meant that trauma was stored in the body. We just thought, okay, we're going to talk about it. And the more you can talk about it, you're going to be okay. But when a traumatic memory is lodged in the limbic system, so area in our brain that is literally just around for survival here to keep us safe and here to kind of analyze threat. When a memory is stuck there, it's always stuck there until we start to move it. And just talking about it makes all of that trigger, all of that arousal right right in your reality, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we start to think about flashbacks and what we think of PTSD. And people think it's always, you know, a flashback has to be what we see in the movies. So, right, like I'm in the grocery store and all of a sudden, boom, I'm back on deployment, right? And a flashback can be a feeling. Mm. Oh, whoa, that carpet is actually super triggering for me. Or a smell, basically any of our senses. Because when we're in fight or flight, our senses are incredibly heightened. And so for some people, when I'm living in the limbic system, all of logic is offline. All of my prefrontal cortex, this big mammalian part of the brain is like, I'm out of here. So that's all of our logic, our reasoning, our organizational skills. And that's why when people have a, you know, defense mechanism, where they deploy fight, flight, freeze, fawn, it's just the brain saying, I'm going to make you survive. And something in my past told me that this helped me survive before. So I'm going to deploy it and there's no logic or reasoning. So anyone that's carrying shame as to why did I just lay there? Why didn't I yell out for help? Why, you know, whatever it might be, because you didn't have choice. Your unconscious brain made that decision for you to keep you safe the best way it knew how. And so if all we're doing is saying, tell me more about that. People are living in the trigger. Mm. Whereas if I can start to actually, and it is possible, if I can start to move that traumatic memory out of the limbic system and into parts of the brain that can make logical sense of it, all of a sudden healing is possible. Mm. So that's part, that's a very like rudimentary way of explaining trauma-informed care. But the idea is that we can get to the trauma, we can get to the trigger without re-traumatizing you. And instead integrating that experience into different parts of the brain to 
actually integrate it and understand it and move forward. So that was a very, very long way of saying talk therapy existed for a very long time. And there's still a lot of practitioners that do it. And there's still a lot of people that get a ton out of going to therapy and like dumping for an hour. And if you're ready to do some really, really deep work, it's going to take getting the body involved. It's going to take getting some of these more trauma informed practices into the mix. Yeah. I, and that, that's been so evident for me in the spaces with the men's work that we've been doing. And like, I remember actually we were at a community workspace, me, you and Lauren, and I was asking you to, to participate in one exercise and it was just really cool to have you there and then also just offer some suggestions. But I bring that up because one of the things that's really evident to me is just creating a space where guys can, can just simply be themselves. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about men's work is like there are activities and there are a bunch of stuff that we do, but really like the underlying thing is creating as safe of a space as possible for people just simply to be themselves. And in that space, especially around other people, um, there's like this inherent, just this, this undercurrent of a feeling. And it's just like this vibe that kind of goes through the space. And I think to your point earlier about, you know, I'm really, I'm surprised, but I'm also not surprised about what you said about people potentially feeling more comfortable at home because it's their safe space. And I think that's the prerequisite for any of this work is just someone feeling safe and, and that connection to the practitioner is absolutely critical. Um, going back to with men and some of the barriers, what are some of the other either stigmas that you're seeing out there or what are most, I don't want to say most guys come to you for, but what's kind of like a, a theme that you've seen a lot of? Mm. Two things I see is either a man is coming in in couples therapy, mm. right? Their partner, oftentimes their female partner has said, we're doing this thing. Together. Together. Okay. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that I've seen there, right? I was just going to say, I was like, uh-huh. especially if one wants to be there and one doesn't. Mm. Or, or, you know, there's a lot of things. There's so much around therapy that you have to be broken. Something has to be wrong. Mm. Something has to, you're not being enough, doing enough, whatever it is. If that's the context that people are associating with therapy, I wouldn't want to go either. (laughs) And I think that's so normal, right? Like, oh, I was going through a divorce. I went through a breakup. Someone passed away, right? I'm working through this stuff, which is by all means, great time to go to therapy. But as a practitioner at that point, I'm just doing damage control. I'm trying to get you into my office and get you regulated and allow your nervous system to feel what it's like to be regulated for 50 minutes so that all shit can hit the fan for the next six days until I see you again. And we're slowly going to get you into this regulated state because you've experienced it with me. And as you experience it with me, can you take five minutes of that outside of the therapy session? Hmm. Or if you're processing something really big, and this is something that I think a lot of men tend to like. I'm only asking you to hang out with it for 50 minutes. So we only have to be emotional and not even the whole time. We can do it for five minutes. And it's this sacred space, this sacred hour that is made for you to touch the stuff that you don't want to touch and you don't have to touch for the rest of your week. Mm. And I think that's really powerful. Now, one of the other things I love to bring up about therapy is that if there's not something quote unquote wrong if you're in a really good place, that's also a perfect time to do therapy. 
because I'm sure as shit not going to take you back to do like early childhood trauma work if you're actively traumatized in front of me. So if you are in a very stable place and you want to do deeper work, that's also a really great time to see a therapist. You don't always have to go to therapy because you're in crisis. So I think getting rid of that kind of idea that it's only when something is going wrong that I go to therapy is super helpful. And then I've seen a lot of men come in to handle kind of what what they might label as anger problems, anger issues, anger management, which is so normal. If you are listening and you're out there and you're like, wow, you know, anytime I feel a big emotion, it shows up as anger. That is so normal, right? Go to a sports bar (laughs) and men are devastated and sad that their team lost, but that's not how it's going to come out. It's going to come out like, fuck you, bro. Like (laughs) that was, that was a penalty and the refs are like, so, so fucked up, right? It's anger. And so a lot of what I do in my practice is, okay, if the anger's here, what's one layer underneath it? Mm. Because we live in a world where anger is the only socially acceptable big emotion for men to feel. Agreed. If you were walking by a man in a sports bar yelling, I probably wouldn't think twice. If I was walking past the park bench and a man was bawling his eyes out. I might have a different experience. I'm a therapist, right? But most people are gonna be like, oh, that's wildly uncomfortable. I don't want to touch that. And so we live in a world that perpetuates anger being the only way men know how to express any major emotion. I completely agree with that. And also, you know, with that anger piece, like it's oftentimes like it's accepted, at least in my experience and observation, like it's acceptable and it's also, if you do express anger, there's something wrong with you still. Like it's accepted, but also like, don't get too angry or- you Or know, go to therapy. Or don't go to therapy. <laughs> yeah, for heaven's sake. And, you know, I really love this. I'm going to paraphrase, but Jordan Peterson had said something about like, it's better to be, for a man, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And so to be able to go there and to utilize anger, like anger is- for me, it's like the, an emotion that I've really worked with and continue working with, like my emotion around like protection. Like if something were to happen to my family or, or violate my personal boundaries, like I'm going to get angry and that is going to be my boundary for saying no. But there's also like a difference when that can kind of like violence and anger, there is a relationship there. But I just thought it was fascinating about how I think it's it's one thing to be that worried, but to know how to control it. And also, like I was talking with Lauren earlier, like you have these polarities you have. And I think going in the extreme in any polarity, and I'm really curious, not only because you're a therapist, but also to hear this from a female's perspective, I think is so unique because most of the guests that I've had on the show have been men, which is beautiful, but there's obviously a completely different lens that in general as a whole, a female would would look to see. And what she was saying, and I'll paraphrase is like, you know, if I saw a man that was like, only, only crying, like all the time, like that was the dominant emotion. Like, yeah, there might be like, I might perceive that as weakness, like being too soft all the time has its own maybe stigma or or experience and then being angry all the time are the predominant emotion. So what has that been like for you, not just as a therapist, but as a female in the world, observing kind of men navigate these emotions? I think that Brene Brown talks about it really beautifully and eloquently too, and daring greatly is we ask our, our man, and this is, you know, for cisgendered 
heterosexual relationships, we ask our male counterpart partner to be vulnerable. What mm. are you thinking? What are you doing? And then they tell us and we're like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> why, why are you telling me? You're supposed to be the hunter, the warrior, the help, like make the home, you know? And so I think that people need to get very, very clear on what is the ask when you're asking someone to go to that place. And are you capable of holding what shows up? Because there's times when I, I mean, I did addiction work for a long time and anger showed up a lot. And underneath that anger, it made so much sense, Mm -hmm. right? It was like, wow, that was so terrible and painful and unfair. And just to have someone hear that, just to have that validated. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm not a bad person for having this angry outbreak, Mm -hmm. but I'm totally justified If someone were to ask me, Gabor Mate puts it perfectly, if we stop asking people what's wrong with you and we start asking what happened to you, we have a completely different perspective of that person. No longer are you just the angry outburst, but it's like, wow, that person went through some really, really tough shit. And I have so much more compassion than anger being met with anger. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we're not getting anywhere. I love that. And in relationship, what advice might you have to, if that situation were to come up in uh, a male and female dynamic where the male is going there and, and maybe being emotional or expressing sadness or crying, whatever, and that female, you know, you had said, getting clear on what the ask is and can you hold that? Is there any advice or in your experience how can a, a female prepare themselves or maybe enter into that and do so with with some tools, for example? Yeah, I love, there's a book called Hold Me Tight. Okay. There's a school of therapy called Emotionally Focused Therapy and Hold Me Tight is EFT for couples. And so I love the book. I can't- Emotional freedom technique, that? Or is it, did no. that stand for something else? Um, emotionally focused therapy. Emotionally focused therapy, okay. Yep, I know EFT has- yeah. Okay. Another, another meaning too, but emotionally focused therapy for couples. Um, Sue Johnson wrote, hold me tight. And it is wonderful. Mm. I use it all the time in my own partnership. I tell all of my clients to read it for a handful of reasons. One is she, she lays out what she calls demon dialogues, right? So there are patterns that happen in relationships. So we might be in conflict and we start to one up each other. Like, well, you're more wrong because you left dishes in the sink. Well, no, you're more wrong because I had a hard day and I can't believe that you would expect me to do the dishes, right? And we get into this huge dialogue and it's me against my partner. Mm. And what she does is lays out a handful of these different dialogues that tend to happen in, in relationship. And she says, the first person to recognize you're in the pattern is the one that wins. The first person to say, oh, we're doing that thing again. And you can call it whatever you want, right? You can name it as a demon dialogue. You can call it dishwasher talk. You can do whatever it is, but just name that the pattern is there. Now it's not you versus me. It's us versus the dynamic. It's like you and I are a team and our goal is to be together in this. So why would we want to continue in patterns that aren't serving us to do that? So she gives you tools for recognizing those patterns. She also gives, you know, reading a book with your partner or having the same foundation of your partner gives you the same language. So now all of a sudden I'm not on my high horse because I'm a therapist and I have all of these intervention techniques. Shout out to my partner that has allowed me to do like, oh, what was that? 
what just, what just, what just came through? And he's like, stop. That's also one thing I'm curious about. How has Davis received uh, this? Does it ever cause reactivity or how's that, you know, you guys are engaged. So congratulations. Thank Yay. You. Uh, how is it, how is it being engaged to a therapist? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Davis, Davis is God so, bless you, Davis. Yeah, shout out. He's so amazing. He is so awesome. And he, I will snap into that. Well, actually, let me back up. I've made it very clear to him, like, I am your partner. I'm not your therapist, mm. right? And there's times when I, you know, anyone who has done, even been there for a friend, how much easier is it to say, do as I say, not as I do, right? I can right. give you all the advice in the world, but I'm not actually going to do it. And so when I lean back on my tools, I always tell him what it is that I'm doing. Okay. And so I share with him, like, this is the process that I'm in and this is what I'm seeing. And I invite him to meet me in that place. I never, am just like, oh, I'm going to deploy this little tactic and, you know, manipulate my relationship. And I think something that always makes us laugh is he, <laughs> he goes, and... <laughs> Because when we first got together, we would say something, say something, say something, but this. And I was like, every time you say, but you negate everything that you said before that. So I love you, but it's like, you don't love me. Right. <laughs> and so the, and is this idea that we can hold two completely different ideas and both can be true. Mm. I love you. And what you're doing right now is really annoying me mm. because that's, that's the human experience. And I think that's what so many people struggle with in not only relationship to other people, but relationship to themselves is, wow, you know, let's relate it back to anger. I'm so angry right now. And I love my dad. And so anytime I, I use a big and, Davis likes to point that out. He'll like stop in the middle of conversation and go, and? And so I think that's how he, that's been his process of like, you're doing that thing again. You're, you're being a therapist. I'm going to highlight how many times you just said, and, but it's very true. The more comfortable we can get with holding two completely different beliefs and knowing that they both resonate with us, the more fluid we can be in the way we respond to situations. It allows me to have any kind of curiosity around why I feel that way. It allows me to be a lot more compassionate when other people show up in a way that might not resonate with me. It's like, wow, that's not my reality. And it's very true for you. It's not my job to tell you that your reality and the way you see the world is not correct. You're never coming back to my therapy office if I'm like, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> next. But if I can create a space where you can get curious about your own beliefs or you can invite in, oh, you know, there is this little voice that also tells me I'm really scared right now. Mm. Then we have a lot more curiosity and compassion to that scared voice. It doesn't always have to be anger that takes over the conversation. That makes total sense. And I think it's beautiful and no surprise why you guys are together. Now I get it. Heart-centered work for most men, speaking very generally here, can be challenging and is challenging to show a more vulnerable side and not necessarily a weak side because at least to me, vulnerability and weakness are by no means the same thing. And in fact, to me, a more vulnerable man or someone who can go to those depths, but also 
be hard, be strong, be affirmative in his actions and clear in his goals and his objectives, man, that is to me a just a beautifully, what I would just say, a whole and strong man. But I also realize, again, vulnerability can be tough. And so oftentimes, we just haven't had it modeled for us as men in the world. And that is exactly one of the main reasons why we have the men's work that we do in the world. And it's so beautiful to see more of this type of men's work showing up. And the Men of Movement Retreat is my attempt to create a space for men to go into some of these depths and to connect with other men with similar, uh, let's just say, values around growing themselves, especially amidst discomfort. And so the next Men of Movement Retreat is happening June 8th through the 11th. If you're a man or a lady who knows a man who could use this type of work, please put them in touch. I would love to get to know them and really hear what is coming up in their life that is motivating them to change or to transform themselves. Also, I just want to share that on April 29th, we have a one-day men's event with a much lower financial barrier to entry just to spread this work across to more men around the area and around the world. That is happening once again, April 29th, and it will be in Northern California at Stemple Creek Ranch. All you got to do is go to my website, mikesalemi.io, and go ahead and hit the Programs tab, and you'll be able to see both the Men of Movement Retreat June 8th through the 11th, as well as the the April 29th one-day event. Whichever one feels like a good fit for you, I would love to hear about it and get to know you more. Now let's get back to the show. One of the things that's been reflected or shared in, in the men's groups that I've been in is oftentimes, and this could happen, I'm just sharing because it's men that are coming to me, but this could be either way, men or women, but there tends to be oftentimes one partner that is really investing in themselves and like doing all this work, whether it's in their physical health or their mental, emotional health. And then as they are doing this work, it's bringing up challenges in the relationship because either one person, the other person may not be ready, willing, or able, whatever it is to meet them there. How important is it for you to be with someone that is willing to meet you there? And you've said it a little bit, but I'd love for you to go deeper. And when someone's in relationship where maybe someone's not willing to meet them in that moment, what's been your experience on how can they navigate that maybe mm -hmm. with greater grace? I know I keep coming back to the word curiosity, but that is it. Mm. If I can stay curious about why my partner is showing up this way, instead of my way is the correct way to do this. Why aren't you here? Okay. Right. That's a lot of like, I'm doing the work and I'm going to drag you along with me. No one wants to do that. Anyone who's done quote the work, it's hard enough to do by yourself. Like yeah. you don't want any kind of dead weight or someone that you are, <laughs> you know, dragging through. And that was a conversation that Davis and I had really early on in our relationship was he said, you know, you went to school for this. You've done a lot of work. You've done a lot of healing. And I feel a few steps behind you mm. and I want to be able to show up. I want to be in this space and I feel like, is that going to be a problem? So again, kudos to him for being I was going to say, very, amen, very amen to him for freaking bringing that up. Like that's a very solid, that's like a vulnerability point and like communicated with just integrity. Like as you were sharing, that was like, Mofo's got like integrity to bring that up and to share. So amen to him. Yeah. And there was no point where I was like, oh, that's such a weakness that you just shared that with me. It was like, wow, you, sh you shared your honest truth with mm -hmm. me. And now I am allowed, because you were so honest, I am allowed to show up with all the information given. I'm allowed to continue into this relationship 
knowing exactly where you are. And my response to him was like, there is going to be times in our relationship where we're on completely different paths. And sometimes we're on the same one. And sometimes I'm still at the starting line and you're halfway down because you're a trail runner, whatever it is. (laughs) And I will always stand beside you and hold your hand, but I will not drag you through it. I will not fight the path for you. That is totally your job. And I want you to know that at any point, if you need to hold my hand tighter or let go or look over your shoulder and make sure I'm still there, I will be. And that is what so many of us need, right? That's early, early, early attachment is object permanence. Can my caregiver leave the room? And I know they still exist. Can my, and you know, carrying on to later relationships, can my partner go out and be out of my sight and can I know he or she or they still love me, mm. even though they're not showering me with the affection? And so we we come back to that place really often of like, I know, and whether that is through love languages, right? Like for me, I like to know he's thinking about me when I'm not around. So when he shows up, like if there's an act of service, I come home, he hung some photos at our new house the other day and he hung them and it felt so good to come home and be like, oh, you don't give a fuck about those photos. <laughs> but you did it because you know, it makes me really happy. And you did that. I wasn't around, right? You think of me when I'm not here. And those are those kind of early attachments that if we didn't have them can feel really scary. We might not know what to do. when all of a sudden we do have a partner that shows up in that way. Or if that's kind of what we're nurturing, right? I come from, I will be the first to acknowledge I'm quite avoidantly attached. And so much of my healing is like allowing these moments for connection to happen and knowing that they are healthy, not scary. Mm. Would you mind just sharing your uh, definition or explain a little bit? Because I'm smallly familiar with attachment, but I would love to hear your experience with it. And like you, yeah, what are the different forms of attachment that you tend to see and and how do you define that? Yeah. So there's, there's four. Secure, right? We're all, we're all hoping for secure attachment. There's more anxious, which is, I'll just go ahead and name them. Secure, anxious, avoidant, and uh, disorganized. Okay. So anxious is more of my caregiver leaves the room and I freak out as a, as a child, right? I don't know how to regulate. Um, it might be kind of, you know, where we see like the helicopter parent and that kid all of a sudden is alone. It's like, oh my God, where, where is my person? How do I, how do I do this? How do I, how, 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 right? And when the caregiver comes back, the kid can be consoled, but they're still quite reliant on, Mm. on the caregiver. Avoidant say that the child is in the room and the caregiver leaves. They might not even notice. They're like, so in their own world that, and that can be for a handful of different reasons, right? Maybe their caregiver worked full time. And they weren't around, right? Maybe there was addiction involved. Maybe there was a handful of reasons that when that kid needed the caregiver, they weren't around. And so the kid was like, I'll figure out how to do it myself. Mm. When the caregiver comes back, they might notice, but more often than not, they're pretty angry. They're like, why are you here? Now you're just really messing up my flow and you weren't around when I needed you. So Mm. I'm going to keep doing me. Then there's disorganized and that's, really, really tough to see. It's when infants or small children got really mixed messages. So it might be from like really highly abusive relationships, like, um, you know, maybe there was child abuse happening. And it's like, I love you, go away. Come here, I hate you. 
right? So there's never a sense of safety. Um, when you see kids oftentimes with, with disorganized attachment, the caregiver might come back into the room and the kid's crawling, but they're crawling backwards towards the caregiver. So there's this idea that like, I'm supposed to be around you, but it's really not safe for me to be. And I'm, I'm disorganized. You know, we see attachment styles show up in so many different ways. So for me, right. I had a a parent that was highly addicted. And so when I needed her to be there and she wasn't, all of my system was like, okay, well, fuck you. I'm going to do it myself. And so I, you know, I say now like hyper independence is a trauma response because it absolutely is. But I saw it as a superpower for a really long time. It's like, I'm going to climb the mountain. I'm going to do the thing. I don't need anyone to go with me. It's like, I got this. And then you get into relationship with someone like that. And you're like, do you love me? You know, like (laughs) I'm so off doing my own thing that I could imagine Davis being like, hello, (laughs) I'm over here. and. So for me, so much of my healing is telling him when that defense mechanism or those protective parts come up in me, when the avoidant parts are really present. Um, early on, I, don't, I hope he doesn't care that I'm telling this story. Hey, I'm telling a story about you. <laughs> early on in our relationship, we were long distance. I was living in California. He was in Colorado still. And we were calling, we're on the phone, having a really, really gentle, like, very casual check-in. It wasn't, hey, we're going to do this drop-in and I'm going to see what goes on, right? Just, hey, how was your day? What's going on? And he said something to the extent of everything is really, really good. My career is taking off. I have incredible friends. I'm really happy where I live. The biggest stressor in my life is a long-distance relationship. And with one decision, I could change that. And you know, like in movies when a bomb goes off and it's like that ringing in your ears, you can't, everything's kind of like disoriented. That's all I could hear after that. And my brain went to, he's going to leave. I'm going to be on my own again. Why did I let myself be so weak as to let him in and not continue on my individual independent journey? I was like literally packing a bag, getting ready to go somewhere, like run, go away, avoid. And I caught myself in that. And I don't want to say like, it's really easy to do. Just catch yourself when you're in a pattern. But I had done a lot of work around this and caught that that's what I was doing, right? And he was still talking about something else by that point because I had tuned out for probably five or 10 minutes planning my escape. And I said, hey, hold on, we got to pause. I stopped listening five minutes ago because I'm like, planning to go out and like get crazy and never talk to you again. And he was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Right? Like so shocked that something he said in passing could rattle me so much. And he was like, what are you you talking about? And I was like, well, you said that the biggest stressor in your life was this long distance relationship. And if you broke up with me, that stress would be gone. And he was like, Lindsay, I never said I was going to break up with you the one decision I was going to make would be moving to San Diego so I could get rid of the distance. And so the lens that I look through so much, right, is people leave, people abandon you, people don't come back. So someone's saying with one decision, the stress could be gone. Of course, my mind jumped to, you're going to get rid of me and the stress is gone. When he was like, no, I want to be closer to you. I'm going to get rid of the distance and the stress will be gone. And so for those moments, and I think that was just a totally normal conversation for him. 
And for me, it was so transformative in our partnership. And the fact that I was like, okay, A, I can show up and be vulnerable and show you the parts of myself that are that I deem as yucky. I don't love that when I get triggered, I'm like, bye, I'm going to not talk to you anymore. So I can show up and show you my shadow and you can love me because of it. Not in spite of it, not you ignore it, but you know it's there and you love me through it. And little moments like that, right, get us closer towards this more secure attachment. More anxious attachment might be... Can I pause you real quick? Yeah. First off, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really insightful and honestly very touching. Like, thank you. I learned a lot right there. So yeah, thank you. And with the uh, avoidance attachment style, could it also be, for example, that you had one parent maybe that was there, but then the other parent was checked out or not there, whatever. Can it also show up in that way or what do you tend to see? I could imagine. Okay. Um, you, it's funny cause we call it good mm-hmm. enough parenting. If your parent does a good enough job, you're going to be okay. <laughs> Which is why it's so devastating that we have so many attachment issues. Cause it's like, all you had to do was good enough and you still <laughs> didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I would imagine, right. We all bid for attachment as, as small children, as infants, I bid for attachment. And if I keep bidding to this one person and that person's not around, mm. then it's going to really kind of mess with my attachment style. Okay. Right. Um, that's why so many of us have a hard time expressing our needs is because when we're really young, if I keep bidding or I keep asking my caregiver to meet my needs and they don't for whatever reason, they're not attuned, whether that's emotionally, physically, Um, They don't have the means, there's addiction, there's full-time work, whatever it is. I keep asking you to meet my needs and you keep failing to meet them. As a kid, right? As an adult, I can be like, okay, boundary, fuck you. You don't show up when I ask you to. But as a kid, we don't have that life experience to know. So all of a sudden, like this person that I am biologically wired to depend on, to ask to meet my needs, can't do it. There must be something scary and wrong about needs, not scary or wrong about my attachment figure. So that's when we get into, you know, kind of more people pleasing or people that can't ask for what they need. It wasn't safe for them to ask. And so all of a sudden, we're this big child walking around in this adult meat suit and we don't know how to ask for needs to get met because it's a really scary thing. Because the first time I did that, I got really chapped and I didn't ever want to do it again. And so you know, that can be, to go back to your question, I could see that um, even if one parent was really present and another one wasn't, um, if that was the person that you kept going to, to fulfill the need and they couldn't, yeah, it could totally mess with your attachment style. Very cool. Okay. Awesome. And then you were saying uh, anxious attachment? Yeah. So anxious, um, right. The more kind of basic way I might say this is like, the person needs reassurance that you're there, right? The person might need you to get through everything. It might be in the world of codependence. It might be um, what someone would maybe label as clingy. It might be like, I'm, man, I'm just at the gym. Why does she have to text me so much? It's funny, my supervisor through practicum and, and through my associateship for therapy used to always talk about attachment as like the yin and yang, right? Or like there was this, inherent desire to attach, to see and be seen, to love and be loved, to connect and be connected to. 
hear and be heard. And that's innate in all of us. And then there's this like dark side of the moon that is like, and what do I do if that person who I connect to leaves? How do I soothe? For the avoidant, I'm going to, I'm going to detach. I'm going to go away. I'm probably not going to allow something to really develop because if it leaves, it's going to hurt really bad. So I'm just going to be kind of have my walls up for the more anxious. It might be like, oh, my thought of that person ever leaving is so distressing that I'm just going to hold on. Mm. I'm just going to dig in deeper. Um, That's actually when we see a lot of domestic violence is I'm going to physically restrain you from leaving. Right. I like, I am so disorganized and dysregulated when I think about our love leaving that I have to, I have to stop you from doing that. Um, and so anxious can show up in that, right. That's kind of the more extreme version. Um, but it can show up that way too. And all we're doing with our attachment style is trying to soothe the fear of what happens if this leaves. How do I recreate safety within myself? Like, what do I do to, to, to cope with this? Okay. And, you know, going on that one, one question, I'd love to make a little transition. So one of the things that like, I love about you, one, you're a homie and friend and like super relatable. And we've trained together before, like a bunch of times actually. And that being said, like you've been a coach for a lot of your life. And, you know, I know that you stepped into therapy, especially in this way that resonates with you. And one thing I'm curious to hear is what do you see as like the difference or how might you define the difference between coaching and therapy mm. and, and just understanding that dynamic a little bit more, because even just up to this point, like I've learned so much about therapy and how maybe it's done before and how it's done differently now. And I'd love to hear, how do you, how do you see these two maybe worlds differently coaching and therapy? Yeah. Um, I mean, the big one, and this is not a knock to any coach out there. I think there's really incredible coaches. I think there's really incredible therapists and there's people on the opposite end of that spectrum too, in (laughs) both fields. So this is by no means a knock at coaches. Um, but the first thing that stands out is just anyone can be a coach. Mm. Anyone can say, I'm a life coach. Come talk to me about life. And with therapy, right, there's the board of behavioral science behind us. We are held to an ethics board. Like we have a license that can be revoked if we do something that's deemed unethical or immoral, right? Um, So there's that. There's also therapists that are, you know, gone and done a ton of continuing education and coaches that have gone and done a lot of continuing education and people on the other end of that. So in the world of therapy, we are required to do continuing education every year. We have to have X amount of units done. Coaching, you don't have to, Mm. right? Um, Again, there are a lot of coaches that do. I think something that separates us a lot is coaching is more like here and now and looking forward. Mm. And because they're not trained in therapy, they're not, there are, I don't want to say none are trauma-informed because there's a lot of really incredible trauma-informed coaches as well. But it's more like where we are and moving forward, where it's therapy is where we are and why. We're going to go back and we're going to do some stuff in the past. We're going to really start to dig into why the patterns are here. So a lot of times it's super helpful to be in therapy and with a coach, right? So it's kind of like I can identify my patterns. I know why they're here. And now because I've done the therapy work and now I'm ready to move forward with the coach that's going to help me in this thing. 
that's not to say that therapists don't do that. I think it's more that coaches should not do that. If you're not a trauma-informed coach, like don't regress me into past lives. Don't, (laughs) don't talk about my childhood trauma because even though I know, I shouldn't say I know, I would hope that the goal is never to harm. There's a lot of harm that can be done by doing that work without knowing what you're doing. Mm. And so, um, you know, there's some other technicalities that separate coaching from therapy. Like I can only see clients that reside in the state of California because my license is in the state of California. A coach see people all, all over the place. Right. And that's more for legal terms. Like if you wanted to come after me for my license, you would have to have right to sue me in the state of California. And if you don't live there, you don't. So there's little things like that too. But yeah, I would say to, to kind of boil it down the most is therapy is what happened. Coaching is now what's happening. Where are we going? Thank you for breaking that down. That's super clear. That's super helpful. What would you say now, uh, as we kind of close this out, um, one, I've learned a lot in a actually very short amount of time. <laughs> so thank you. Where would you say you're most excited about moving forward? Because I think before we hopped on, you were saying at this present time, you're not taking clients and like moving forward, what are you most excited about? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I paused taking clients. We recently moved in with my grandmother and we're caretaking and that's you know, I wanted the space to be able to show up and do that. And there's no way that I could have held space for clients hours and hours every day and then showed up for her the way she needs me. Um, so I'm really excited to see how that unfolds. It's a area of my life that is brand new to me. I've never done something like this and it feels really, really special. She has, she's 90, right? <laughs> like she like looks at my phone's like, what are you doing? I'm like watching TikTok and she's like, right? The things that she has seen in her life is just incredible. So I'm really excited to learn from her. I am excited to the day that I circle back to therapy. Like I still am doing continuing education. I still, I have my podcast. I'm still talking to other professionals in my field. I love learning. And so I'm really excited to go back to it with all of the new tools I have in my tool belt. Yeah. And more than anything, I'm just excited to experience this season of life that I'm in right now that I'll never experience again. So trying to be present in what's, what's here right now. Mm. Getting engaged. Getting engaged. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Plan a wedding and talk about childhood trauma. All of that will come up. <laughs> all, all of that will come up. You're like, oh, you're crossing my boundaries. How do I, how do I say this? I'm not a bridezilla. I just have boundaries. <laughs> so yeah. If you think you're woke and healed, plan a wedding. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much. Before we close out, um, is there any final maybe piece of closing words that come up for you in the light of the conversation that we have that you'd love to leave people with? I think the biggest thing is just to stay curious. Stay curious about yourself. Stay curious about others. Have the courage to change your mind when you've been presented with new information. If something about this podcast is like, oh, wow, I thought therapy was only for really broken people. You're allowed to change your stance on that. You're allowed to say, maybe it is really something I want to experience. And and nothing's permanent. So you could totally go to therapy and be like, mm, glad I did that, not going back, right? Like continue to stay open and and ready for what's to come. Super appreciate that. And where can people find you? Um, 
You can listen to my podcast, Get Psyched. Mike has been on that. He, Mike psyched. was an early, early uh, episode of Get Psyched, which is awesome. You, of course, always have an open microphone there. Thank you. Um, and then I've been pretty quiet on social, but we'll see. It's coming back. You can catch me on Instagram at Lindsay Taylor Lock. Cool. Well, thank you again, Lindsay. Appreciate you. Yeah, you got it, Mike. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path, and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.